made in Boston by the famous colonial silversmith Paul Revere and measured nearly five feet in diameter. It no longer swung and tilted to operate the clapper as it once had, but was now fixed and had a hammer that struck it on the hour to give the ringing sound. The hum we had heard from the sidewalk below wasn't much louder than it had seemed earlier. In fact, we could comfortably talk over it when we first climbed into the tower. Nor was it painful to our ears at first. After a while, though, I suppose we were standing directly beside it, the steady vibration began to annoy my ears and then hurt them. It reminded me of my pup's annoyance whenever I hummed in his ear, how he'd tolerate it briefly, then give a twitch of his ear and finally walk away from me. No kidding about this view, I said, scanning the town from my bird's perch. This is an amazing vantage point. You can see everything. And look at the view of the green, Devaney said, focusing on a long-distance shot, then for a zoom. Oh, imagine what this bell has seen in two hundred years. The stories it could tell. Parades and church fairs and carnivals and kite-flying, I said. Kids making out on the green on warm summer nights, Devaney chimed in. More than making out, Dutch added. I've had to throw cold water on them more than once. The three of us laughed and turned back to the ladder. Our inspection had lasted less than five minutes. I noted that, though the bell hummed, nothing vibrated. Not the decking we stood on, not the stairs of the ladder, hardly even the bell when I felt it. Even though I was no engineer, I had passed my science classes, and new sound was produced by vibration, and if the bell was vibrating at all, there had to be a source. But neither I nor others who had checked earlier for a source could locate it. Devaney and I thanked Dutch for the tour, and told him we wanted to look around the village proper, perhaps interview a few locals about this strange phenomenon. He volunteered the names of the youth group teens in case we wanted to talk with them. So off we went on a walking tour of this quaint New England village. We learned something right away, something which could easily have proven irrelevant. But because I was searching for something that might tie into a Halloween theme for a story, I took notes on even the seemingly unrelated, such as the first things a visitor noticed upon leaving Interstate Route 91 at Norwich, Vermont, are the neat, black-shuttered houses which are so quintessentially New England. Then comes the historic village green, which you look through as though a camera's viewfinder to see Old South Church fifty yards beyond the far side of the green. The white board fence around the green perfectly centers Old South for pictures, which explains why the church has graced more Christmas cards, calendars, and coffee-table books than any other church in Vermont. On the edge of the green, beside the roadside turnout where visitors park in order to take pictures, a large blue and gold plaque proclaims Norwich's downtown to be on the National Historic Register. But under the plaque is yet another plaque, erected by the Friends of Norwich, which tells the story of the Norwich Witch. In 1793, ten years after Norwich was granted its charter, and a hundred years after the Salem, Massachusetts witch trials, Hester Glynn, a young woman thrice widowed, was accused of being a witch. Her accuser was a seventy-five-year-old minister, John Ogletree, not from Norwich, but from across the Connecticut River at Hanover, New Hampshire, home to Dartmouth College. Influenced by the stories of the Salem witch trials told him in his youth by his hellfire and brimstone minister grandfather, 
Ogletree became convinced that the widow Glynn, thrice widowed so beware becoming her fourth, he cautioned, was responsible for a veil of evil which hung over the village. Ogletree actually preferred charges against Mrs. Glynn, but his accusations were laughed out of court. Then one morning Widow Glynn's body was found at the back corner of the village green beneath the spreading arms and heart-shaped leaves of a more than hundred-year-old linden tree. Her throat had been slit, and dark blood soaked the ground around the linden tree's roots. The Reverend Ogletree was nowhere to be found, and rumors circulated quickly that he had fled the area. An arrest warrant was issued, but folks were certain he'd never show his face again, and there was no pursuit. So went the legend of the Norwich Witch. After a bit of rummaging for information, Devaney and I learned that on July 4th, 1970,